0: title of the sermon this morning is our titles and our role. Our text is 1st Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, but I want to read verses 4 through 10 uh, for context. 1st Peter 2, 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather week by week to look into your word. Uh, And I ask that uh, as uh, we open the scriptures this morning that you would Uh, By your spirit, use the scriptures to bring conviction for those who need to be convicted, that you would bring encouragement for those who need to be encouraged, um, and that you would just remove from the minds uh, anything I might say in human weakness that is not pleasing to you. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen. Since we're looking at a text in the middle of the book, I want to mention something about the book as a whole. Um, as it relates to the verses we're looking at. So Peter addresses the book in verse 1 to the elect exiles of the dispersion. It's possible that these Christians have been forcibly kicked out of Rome because of their faith, especially because of their refusal to worship the Roman gods. In one sense, all Christians are exiles. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our real home the place where we really belong is where the will of God is done perfectly. But we know, as it says in Hebrews, that at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So we'll always be exiles until we reach our eternal home. Peter doesn't tell the believers to look forward to a change in the circumstance of their earthly exile, but says that they are to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Throughout the book, Peter's giving both encouragement and instructions to the believers in this situation, how we should think of ourselves and how we should conduct ourselves. So I want to look at the text under those two main headings, who we are and what we do, and then we'll consider some practical applications. So let's begin with the first part of verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So I want to notice three things about that section as a whole, and then we'll look at each of the titles one by one. First, these titles are for Christians. Earlier in the chapter that we read, it says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter is drawing a contrast between those who believe and those who do not. Only those who believe in Christ, the living stone, themselves become living stones. Only those who believe in Christ, the cornerstone, are built into a spiritual house. All stones are laid with reference to the cornerstone. And so a rejection of Christ makes someone not part of the building by definition. When we come to a text where such a sharp contrast is drawn, it's a good time for self-reflection and for us to ask ourselves which side of the division we're on. If the Spirit of God is convicting you of your sin and of the truth of the saving work of Jesus, then the way is open for you. Those who come to him in repentance and faith will not be turned away. So these titles are only for Christians, but they are for all Christians. These are not just privileges of those who are more mature, more sanctified, or have some special position in the church. Second, these are titles of honor. Now they're not honorary in the sense of being not real, but Peter's pointing out these true things in order for Christians to feel the weight and honor of their position. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So why is he doing that? One of the reasons is that we need to be reminded of different things in different circumstances. So James says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Peter's writing to exiles experiencing trials So he reminds them of the truths that have to do with belonging. We know from the parable of the sower that people usually fall away from the faith either because of the excessive burden of their trials or because of the elation of pleasures. It's the same principle uh, behind the prayer of Augur where he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. This kind of moderation is more conducive to a faithful life." This is instructive for the way that we speak to one another. The more our brother or sister is experiencing hard times, the more our words need to contain encouraging reminders of our privileges and status in Christ and the reward of our coming inheritance. Similarly, if people are at a particularly high point, they need to be reminded of how earthly things are passing away and urged to reflect on their own shortcoming and encouraged to sacrifice. Of course, that's not the only thing that guides our conversation with one another. We also rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. But it's a helpful thing to consider uh, when we're thinking about how to engage each other on spiritual matters. Third, notice that these titles are corporate, race, priesthood, nation, people. All people are both individuals and members of a group. In one way, we're each ourselves in distinction to everyone else. But we're also the members of a group of some kind, usually many groups. And this contributes to our identity. We may be part of a family, a circle of friends, a local community, a sports team, a school, a political party, a culture, a race, a trade, a business, a city, or a country. Both aspects are important. Here, where we live, we tend to emphasize individualism, but there's huge variation from person to person. Some people are so individualistic that identifying with the group seems very external, like it's a circumstance of life, not part of who we are. On the other hand, some people are so contentedly enmeshed in family or community life that it may be hard to distinguish their own thoughts and acts from that of the community, Given this wide range in our subjective experience, uh, how should we we be thinking about our identity as we go through this text? Well, if you're more of an individualist, come be part of the group. There's a line in an old John Denver song that says, uh, it's a love song, it says, make it part of you to be part of me. So I would say, make it part of your identity to be part of the people of God. The answer to, who am I, is not only I am a Christian, but also I belong to the people of God. If you already tend to perceive your identity as part of a group, remember that belonging to the people of God is the first and deepest. We continue to belong to many different groups at the same time, and usually they work in harmony with each other. But sometimes they come into conflict. What if what's best for my career will be taxing for my family? Or what if none of my friends support the political candidate that I like? In those examples, you have to make a careful choice. But your identity as belonging to the people of God should always win over all others. It should be more a part of you to belong to the people of God than to be the child of your parents, the spouse of your spouse, or the parent of your own children. Jesus demonstrates this when his family comes looking for him. It says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So now let's look at these titles one by one. First it says, but you are a chosen race. Some translations say a chosen generation. For us, race has to do primarily with skin color, which is not what Peter had in mind. Also, we use the term generation to mean the particular uh, group of people alive of a certain age at a certain time, like millennials or Gen Z or Gen X. But the word doesn't have those time-limiting connotations either. It means something more like kin or our very extended family. We belong to the same giant family group in a sense. In this context, the race is chosen not by biology, but by belief, as we saw earlier in the chapter. The chosen people are people characterized by having been chosen by God. Peter's already made reference to this by referring to the believers as elect exiles in the first verse of the book. But there's something else going on in the text that will be important to notice as we go through. What would the Jewish readers of the first century have been thinking when they read something like chosen race? They would have thought, that's us. We're the chosen race. We're, we're the... Uh, We're the chosen generation. We're the heirs of God's promises to Abraham. And so Peter is very deliberately addressing that expectation and purposely using the language he's using. He's making the point here, and really through the whole chapter, that the Gentiles, us, are now full participants in the promises. He's making the point that Paul makes in Galatians when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so we are an eclectic people. When Jess and I were first married, we didn't have the option of buying furniture and decorations uh, for our house to fit according to a particular style. We picked up things we liked from the thrift store and the side of the road and things we got as gifts and things we inherited from family. And we put all these seemingly random elements together into a homey space that we love. And similarly here, we're an eclectic people put together from every part of the world, from every age group, every way that humanity could be divided. We've been brought together and been made into a beautiful house. When John saw the heavenly vision, he saw people before the throne of God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, when the gospel was first preached, some went around teaching that those who come to Christ must also receive circumcision, that is, become Jewish. But the apostles dealt with that early on in uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, Therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. In other words, they were to abstain from immorality and from idolatry, but they didn't have to adopt the life of the Jews. One of the glorious things about the New Covenant is that the wild vines are grafted in. We are the true worshippers who worship neither on Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem, but we worship in spirit and in truth. And so there's great variety in this great family. We dress differently, we think differently, we express our praise differently, we vote differently, we eat differently, we have different opinions, different convictions, and different interests. But with all this difference, there is still a spirit of unity and peace because there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The application is that we ought to hold fast to what unites us And let the differences of our brothers and sisters build the body up. We are not all eyes and we are not all hands. We are an eclectic people and should never say to any part, I have no need of you. So let's look at the second title, A Royal Priesthood. What does it mean to be a priest? The first picture that comes to mind will probably be a Roman Catholic or Orthodox priest or maybe robed Levites offering sacrifice in the temple. Each of those cases has to do with a priestly vocation. So when Peter speaks of the believers as a kingdom of priests, he clearly does not mean that each of us hold a special office in that way. We need to understand priesthood somewhat more broadly. Priesthood most basically has to do with access to the divine presence. The Levitical priests, after having purified themselves, served God in the temple. Peter has just explained earlier that we are living stones and have been built into a spiritual house, that is, the temple. We are now the temple and the priests. Having been purified by the blood of Christ, we now have access to serve in God's presence. Royal, too, then, has a more general sense. Clearly, not everyone is a king or part of a king's family or even tribe, but as with priesthood, the royal aspect has to do with our relationship to God. We call God Father, and we are his children. The term Son of God is a royal title. Jesus said that in his kingdom, we do not exercise authority like the world does. We are not authoritarian. We do not lord our power over others. We serve. And that doesn't mean that we just substitute the word service for the same harsh rulership. It means that we are to be a kingdom of priests, that our relationship is defined by mutual priestly service. We are in some ways more priestly than the vocational priests of the New Testament. Earlier in the chapter, Peter says that the builders rejected the cornerstone Who are those builders? Uh, Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests. Who was it who first suggested that Jesus be killed? It was Caiaphas, the high priest. If the priests have rejected Jesus, the cornerstone of the spiritual temple, what place is left for them? They rejected the temple that he built and so find themselves outside it. In our temple, there is no longer the service of priests who serve according to the Mosaic law, but a spiritual priesthood who serve under Jesus, the high priest in the spiritual temple. Now, this is not merely an obscure similarity to an ancient practice. God created man in the beginning and placed him in the garden sanctuary where he walked with God. Adam, having been formed by God directly, was called by Luke, son of God and God gave him dominion over the world, Adam was a royal priest. The tabernacle and later the temple were imitations of Eden. The tree-shaped lampstand represented the tree of life. The garden, like the temple, faced east and was located on a mountain. There were carvings of plants in the temple, flowers, palm trees, and pomegranates. Gold and onyx are present in both. And when Adam sinned, one of the cherubim came down with a sword to guard the entrance to the garden. It was just like the golden cherubim on the veil of the Holy of Holies in the temple. But that's the veil that has been torn. Christ has won back Eden. No cherubim blocks our way. We have royal priestly access to the presence of God. Being a royal priesthood, is a return to the intent for humanity before the fall. Mediation is an aspect of priesthood uh, that naturally follows from having access to God. In prayer, we bring the needs of others to God. We pray for the forgiveness of the sins of others, as we have the example of Jesus and Stephen. And this prayer is labor, not drudgery, But it's time consuming and sometimes difficult paul viewed those who prayed as if they labored right along with him we also offer sacrifice we don't offer animals as sacrifices anymore since jesus is the great high priest um, who offered himself as such a perfect sacrifice that none other will ever be needed but we do offer sacrifice As Paul says, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That is, we do not sacrifice our life all at once in death, but we sacrifice our life moment by moment to God as we do what he commands. And what he has commanded is love. That means that our loving service for one another is priestly work because we sacrifice the moments of our life to serve God by serving one another. Our loving service is priestly in another way because it's mediatorial. John says that God's love is perfected, that is, brought to completion in us. We love because we first received love in the presence of God. We forgive because he has first forgiven us. The work of teaching is priestly. There are particular people who have a teaching role, but all Christians ought to teach in some capacity. In the book of Hebrews, the whole congregation is told, by this time you ought to be teachers. Later in the book, Peter tells the believers that they all need to be ready to give an answer to those who ask them a reason for their hope. This doesn't have to be difficult. Listen to this from the book of 2 Kings. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. This little girl's simple faith and simple words led not only to Naaman's healing, but also to him rejecting the worship of idols and coming to know God. She was the light to the nations that Israel was supposed to be. She was exercising a priestly role. Let's look at the next title, a holy nation. The word nation means something somewhat different than how we generally think of it. We think of nation as the area or people ruled by a particular government. Especially here in in Canada, many different kinds of people live in a nation. There may be tenuous similarities and a shared understanding, but mostly someone is considered part of the nation because they live here. As Peter uses the word here, he means something much more personal. A nation is more like a people group. It's people who have a similar way of doing things and thinking about things. Now, often these groups also constituted some kind of political entity, so there's overlap. But these are your people. If you go to a, a foreign country that's very different and you stay there for a while and then you meet someone from, from back home. You're glad to see them and you're glad to talk about, uh, you're glad to talk about things with, with them. That's nation. Peter says that God has formed us into our own nation. Not that we're an independent country, but that we're our own people group. The stranger we're glad to see now in a foreign country is not other people from Canada or people from wherever we happen to be from. It's other Christians. This is different from a group, which can be arbitrary. If I say everyone on the left is on the blue team, and everyone on the right is on the red team, that's a group. But there's no central feature uh, binding the group together. What characterizes our nation is not shared language or geography, but holiness. Now when I hear the word holy, I instinctively think moral. Moral. If I think for more than a second, I think separate, usually with implications of moral. But I'd have to say honestly that I'm somewhat uninspired at the thought of belonging to a moral nation. Paints a picture of a rather dull, uninteresting life. But holiness is a passion. Peter contrasts holiness with ignorant passion in chapter 1. We use the word in a broader sense... But the word passion in this text mostly has to do with lust, not with zeal. The intent is not to contrast the zealous, interesting, passionate life with the quiet, boring, moral one. He's contrasting the lustful passion of ignorance with a passion for holiness. We leave a life of sexual immorality, coveting, anger, gossip, obscene talking, and lying, and pursue holiness with the same intensity. But then what does holiness mean? On one hand, holy is used to talk about the very ordinary objects dedicated to God's service. As an example, when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought in when Solomon had, uh, had built the temple, it says, And when they brought up the Ark of the Lord, the Tent of Meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. So it's not conscious moral beings that are being described as holy, but the vessels or utensils in the temple. Forks, tongs, scoops. Yet on the other hand, as we sang this morning, the angels that surround the throne of God constantly call holy, 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 indicating that holiness is something that's central to God's essence. I found D.A. Carson's insight most helpful here. He said that holiness at its core is an adjective for God. The angels near the throne are saying he is God, he is holy. The meaning of holy then extends in concentric circles so that the things which are dedicated to his service are also called holy by extension. There are holy places, holy utensils, and returning to our text, a holy nation. We are to be holy because he is holy. It is if God says, be like me because I'm like me. And so holiness is about being totally dedicated to the things that God is dedicated to. Holiness does involve being moral, not centrally, but because our sins drop away as we strive to devote every part of our inner person, outer person, and every part of our individual and corporate lives to the service of God. We are not just to be holy individuals, but here in this text we are to be a holy nation. We don't usually think of nations as having a task, whether in the political sense or the broader sense of nation that we've been looking at. We mostly think of a nation or or people group as providing a context for us to do something else. But our national project is holiness. Christians are like extended family to one another because we have oriented ourselves uh, both individually and as a group to being like God and serving his interests. Let's consider the fourth title, A People for His Own Possession. Through this whole section we've been looking at, Peter's been referencing Exodus 19 that Beverly uh, read for us. So this is the passage where Moses is on Mount Sinai about to receive the the Ten Commandments. Israel's just left slavery in Egypt about three months before this. He says, uh, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. Peter's clearly taken most of the verse we've been looking at from God's covenant with Israel. We're going to look at the significance of that transfer in a minute, but I want to first look at, at uh, the phrase in this text to help it, to help um, fill in some of the meaning of that phrase, people for his own possession. It says here in Exodus, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Everything in the world is his, but we are special to him. He orchestrates everything that happens out there, but he's brought us to himself. We feed all the animals in our yard, cats, squirrels, birds, raccoons, skunks, and possums. But only Rex our bird sits at our table. The whole world belongs to God, and He cares for it, but we sit at His table. For us to be with God is not merely a peripheral blessing or something that's procedural to something else. For God and man to be together is the goal of the covenant. I had a young man tell me once that marriage was about holiness rather than happiness, but that being married married would give him a partner in ministry. I told him he should consider staying single. The goal of marriage is union with someone you love. Many things flow from that. You do work together in ministry. There are responsibilities. You raise children. You do hopefully grow in holiness together. But being together isn't just a means to those ends. Similarly, there are many blessings and responsibilities that come from having a relationship with God but the goal is that we get to be together. Our God loved us and sent his son to die so that we would be reconciled. It's important to remember that there's love in the love of God. Think of the deepest affection that you've ever felt for another person and let that help you gain an insight into God's love for his people. For some reason, it can be easy for us to mentally read, so you better shape up after every sentence in the Bible. You shall be my treasured possession, so you better shape up. You shall be a kingdom of priests, so you better shape up. We need to let the affection of God speak to us as strongly as the commands of God. The sense of the text is more like, I love you and I will treasure you above all others in the world. There are implications for action, even here in this text. We usually do need to shape up. But my point is that we don't miss the love because of the command. I now want to address how Peter can take the same terms from the covenant God made with Israel at Sinai and apply it so directly to the church. Uh, Verse 10 of our text explains how Peter is uh, thinking about the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant between ancient Israel and the church. Uh, This is what he says, uh, verse 10 of our text. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this is actually a reference to the book of Hosea. This is what the prophet said. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, Not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So here's what's going on. Israel had been unfaithful in many ways, worshiping other gods, indulging in many other sins, and they were not repentant. So finally God says to them these horrifying words, You are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet there's a promise of restoration woven through the book. He says, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So Peter is referring to this prophecy here because he recognized that it is in Christ that the reversal happens. The Jews who were rejected as God's people and had not received mercy are yet shown mercy and are again included in the people of God when they come to Jesus. Because of other prophecies, it's important that the people of God be ruled by the Davidic dynasty. And this is actually mentioned later in Hosea's prophecy. He said, afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord, the Lord their God, and David their king. Now, David had been dead for a long time when this was written. It's about the Davidic heir. It's about Jesus. There's a double sense of this text uh, in the way that Peter's using it. So not only do those of Israel who believe receive mercy and once again become a people, but Gentiles, who were never part of the people of God, have now received mercy and become his people. Paul teaches the exact same thing in Romans using the illustration of grafted plants. He says, some of the branches, unbelieving Jews, were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. That is why Peter can take these titles and recognize that they apply to us. God has, in every time, had his people who are his treasured possession. There has been pruning and grafting done to the vine since the time of Moses, so it looks different. But in every age, the people have been a holy nation, and served God as royal priests. So we've looked at each of these titles and what they mean, and as we went, we considered some of the implications for action. But Peter has one particular response in mind, which he mentioned in the second part of verse 9. He says, the main thing we do in all these roles is proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The main thing we do as a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and a treasured possession is message out how great God is. Before we look at how we do this, I want to ask and hopefully answer a more basic and somewhat irreverent question. Isn't it selfish and arrogant for God to arrange things for his own praise? He gives us all of this honor and blessing and people in position that we've been looking at, and then says, in your new situation, praise me. Sometimes when Jess and I are not together in the evening, and there's a, a beautiful moon, in the a particularly large moon, in the sky, one of us will just text the other one word, moon, and then the other will uh, run outside if we can and, and go and look at the moon. And that's so that the other will go out and experience the awe and beauty and wonder. We say things like, that's amazing, that's beautiful. And so in one sense, without worship, we praise the moon. But God is God. And what can he point to? What can he say, being God, except look at me and marvel? Bring others to see me. In one, in one sense, whatever can be praised in something else, if there's anything loving, anything glorious, anything beautiful, anything good, it is only that way because it's somehow, in some aspect, like God. Listen to these words from an old song that I used to listen to as a boy. God and God alone created all these things we call our own. From the mighty to the small, the glory in them all is God's and God's alone. So if we're going to praise God, how do we do it? First, proclamation happens just by being those things we've looked at. For example, Jesus said, Let your light uh, shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. There's a kind of automatic proclamation that happens when we love each other. The people who see come to know something about God. So this is the same way that creation glorifies God. The psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Similarly, when our lives corporately and individually are conformed to God's plan for those things, when we love each other like a chosen race, when we're behaving like a nation zealous for holiness, when we do the work of a royal priesthood, when we are delighted by the affection of our God, then we are proclaiming the excellencies of God. But there's more to it than that. The praise of God must not only be passive, but active, deliberate, and verbal. We must use our voice, our affection, and our will. A stone is part of creation. A stone declares the glory of God in its way. It's more difficult to see the glory of God in a stone than in a starry night sky, but it's there. And each one plays the role that he assigned to it. But remember what Jesus said when he rode the donkey into Jerusalem. A crowd of Jesus' uh, followers were shouting and saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Pharisees were trying to shush them. But then Jesus said that if the praise of the people were to fail as the divine sun rode into the royal city, the stones of the earth would have left their assigned place of passive proclamation and begun verbally shouting the praises of God. This is not an exaggeration. The stones really would have spoken. The creation will not violate the reason for which it was brought into being the praise of God. This is also a rebuke. To try to restrain the praise of God is to show less sense than a stone. To neglect the praise of God is to use your human will, which was meant to bring greater glory to God, to try to contravene the reason for your own being. Part of the great indictment of humanity in Romans says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Over the last year or so of going through the Psalms on Wednesday nights, I've been amazed at how central a role our praise and thanks and adoration is. Just last Wednesday, we read Psalm 51, and David, amid his request for forgiveness and cleansing, says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. As I'm noticing this more and more, I realize how much more filled with the praise of God my own life ought to be. I should not be sitting back and enjoying the lavish daily blessings that God gives without speaking about them to other people. If you only take away one thing from this morning, let it be this. Let the phrases of God always be coming from your mouth. So what are the occasions of verbal praise? Sing. This counts. Singing is not the time to be taking your emotional temperature. Sing like you pray, with an awareness that God is here and listening. Remember that we are the temple, and the Spirit of God is present here, and he enjoys the songs of his people. Sing in other places. Paul and Silas sang praise in prison. Sing at home if you can. Sing with your family, or sing along with worship music on Spotify. Praise him with instruments. Psalm 43 says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. Sandra McCracken recorded a version of the psalm where she changed one word. She said, then I will praise him with my guitar. So use whatever instrument you have to praise, a guitar, a bass, a piano, or a drum. Give testimony to answered prayer. Tell your family, tell strangers that you meet. Share with us at prayer meeting. Bring it up in conversation. Talk about God's providential dealings with you. My car has been pretty reliable, but it wouldn't start a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't in Hamilton, or Aurora, or downtown, or anywhere else far away where I usually am. I was here in the parking lot of the church, painting the gym. I was five minutes from a mechanic and five minutes from my house. Jess came and picked me up. That is the providence and kindness and love and mercy and power of God. Share stories like that. These are just a couple of examples If you keep your attention focused on proclaiming the excellencies of God, you will think of more things. Let it be sincere, though, and don't just say words that you read in a theology textbook. Complete the process with praise. When God answers your prayer, message it out. When God forgives you, message it out. Even when you're excited by God's work in the life of someone else, do the same thing. Gossip about God. So what is the content of our praise? Actually, several things pointed to in this text that inform the content. Um, first, we have the fact of having been made all these things—a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for His possession. Especially in our time of, of, you know, when people tend to be uh, lonely and isolated and not having a strong sense of belonging. Uh, but God has given us a people. That's something we can take back to our unbelievings and our unbelieving friends and say, "I was lonely," or. I would have been isolated like that, but God made me part of a family. Secondly, we can talk about our experience of transfer from uh, darkness to light. How did God bring you from not knowing him to knowing him? Again, this list will be endless when we begin to consider it and give attention to it. So I want to conclude with a few points of application. One, ask yourself if you know Christ. Are you part of the royal priesthood? Or have you rejected Christ, the cornerstone of the spiritual temple? Remember that those who come to him with faith and repentance will not be rejected. Number two, speak to one another according to what the person is experiencing, like Peter does to the believers here. If someone is experiencing difficulty, encourage them. Number three, make being a part of the people of God, not just something external that you do, but part of who you are. Number four, don't try to force your brothers and sisters to be just like you, but enjoy seeing the church built up through the different gifts of its members. Of course, that doesn't mean we tolerate sin and unholiness, but there is nevertheless great diversity. Number five, serve one another in a humble, priestly way, bringing needs and requests before God and being willing to sacrifice your time and money and energy. Of course, we believe in authority in the church, but not authoritarianism. We use all things to serve, not to wield control and power. Number six, teach others according to your gifts. Maybe you can debate like Paul with the philosophers on Mars Hill. Or maybe you are more like that little slave girl who only knew that her God had given healing powers to his prophet. But speak truth according to the knowledge that God has given to you. Number seven, believe in the affection that God has for you. When God says love, it doesn't mean loving action with a cold heart. Look at the cross and remember that God loves you violently. Eight and finally, praise God. Praise him with your life. Praise him in song. Praise him in prayer. Praise him in conversation. Let us do it constantly and sincerely as the chosen race, holy nation, royal priesthood, and treasured possession that we are. Amen.